Welcome back or to the Sleep Research Society podcast. My name is Jesse Cook and I serve as host of the Sleep Research Society podcast, which is purposed to disseminate and discuss the latest findings in sleep and circadian science. Before diving into today's episode, it is critical for me to emphasize that the views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual being interviewed and do not reflect the views of the Sleep Research Society or its affiliates. Also, this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. If you believe you have a medical problem, please speak with your doctor. And now for an orientation to the topic of focus for today's episode. The circadian clock located in the suprachiasmatic nucleus plays a central role in regulating gene expression, physiology, and behavior in humans through daily rhythms. Ocular light exposure exists as the primary driver of synchronization of the circadian clock. Notably, humans vary greatly in the sensitivity of their circadian clock to light, with this variability contributing to the heightened risk or resilience to a multitude of pathologies, including delayed sleep-wake phase disorder, mood disorders such as depression and bipolar disorder, and other sleep disturbances. Previous research in twin studies supports circadian light sensitivity as a heritable trait, with additional research substantiating genetic variation as a contributor to inter-individual differences in circadian light sensitivity. Chalapa and colleagues published findings in 2012 that associated a common variable number tandem repeat polymorphism in the PER3 gene with light sensitivity. However, this research was limited by the relatively small sample size utilized in this investigation, and no other work has analyzed the genomics underlying circadian light sensitivity. The investigation of focus for this episode, entitled Genome-Wide Gene-by-Environment Study of Time Spent in Daylight and Chronotype Identifies Emerging Genetic Architecture Underlying Light Sensitivity, progresses this line of research through a genome-wide interaction study that was designed to identify loci that enhance or attenuate the relationships between individual daytime light exposure and chronotype. Specifically, the investigation tested gene-by-environment interactions between single nucleotide polymorphisms, or SMPs, or SNPs, and daytime light exposure on chronotype to better understand the genomics underlying light sensitivity. For this episode, I am joined by Angus Burns and Dr. Jacqueline Jackie Lane to discuss this recently published article in the journal Sleep. Before diving into the interview portion of today's episode, here is a brief background on today's guests. Angus Burns has in recent weeks submitted his PhD dissertation at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia, where he was mentored by Dr. Sean Kane and is an incoming postdoctoral research fellow at the Brigham and Women's Hospital Division of Sleep and Circadian Disorders under the mentorship of Dr. Jacqueline Lane. Angus is also an affiliate of the Broad Institute Medical and Population Genetics Program. Angus's work sits at the confluence of genetics, epidemiology, and chronobiology, focusing on human inter-individual differences in light exposure and non-visual light sensitivity and how they relate to human health, in particular, psychiatric disease. Dr. Jacqueline Lane is an instructor in medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital in the Division of Sleep and Circadian Disorders and an affiliate of the Massachusetts General Hospital Center for Genomic Medicine and Broad Institute Medical and Population Genetics Program. 
Jackie's research focuses on the advancement of human health by using genomics to answer questions about the basic biology of circadian rhythms and associated disease risk with an eye towards increasing the inclusion of diverse patient perspectives in research and clinical interventions. Jackie's work is among the first to characterize human genetic variation in morning or evening preference and to extend that work across ancestry groups to create genetic risk prediction of circadian rhythm disorders for clinical risk assessment. Jackie is a Claughlin Distinguished Scholar, a McCants Center Grant recipient, and a recipient of the Sleep Research Society Outstanding Early Investigator Award. And now for the interview portion of today's episode. Angus Burns, or should I say soon to be or currently Dr. Angus Burns and Dr. Jacqueline, Jackie Lane. Thank you both very much for taking time out of your schedule to digitally sit down with me to discuss your research. Let's start with this. How are you both doing today? We'll start with Angus since he's technically a day ahead. Yes, I'm joining you from the future in Melbourne, Australia. Very nice to meet you, Jesse. Thanks for having us on. I'm doing well. As you mentioned, I'm sort of in the liminal space between submitting my PhD and having it conferred. So yeah, not quite a doctor yet, but yeah, <laughs> very nice to be here. Pleasure to meet you as well. Thank you for joining us from truly the time traveling future day ahead. And kudos to you for getting that thesis completed and submitted. Listeners can't see it, but I am just brimming with envy as I am in the kind of later stages of my dissertation and would like to finish that up and join Angus in his current kind of limbo state, if you will, but a good one. Jackie, always a pleasure. How are you doing? I'm good. And thanks for having me. And I just wanted to say to both of you and everybody out there doing your thesis, keep going. You'll get there. Sometimes it doesn't feel that way, but I promise you'll get there. So thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk about this work today and to chat with both of you. Always a pleasure to have you. Always a pleasure to talk with you. And I appreciate the positivity and support. I feel like I wake up each morning with like Stephen Pressfield in my brain on the kind of war of art. And I'm just like resistance, resistance, resistance. Every reason why this dissertation is not going to get finished. How awful I am as a writer. All those wonderful thoughts. So the morning hours usually a little bit difficult these days, but uh, it will get done, as you said. But today is not a deep dive into dissertation life, but rather we're going to eventually talk about your awesome research. Before we do that, I think we should just kind of rev our engines with a little bit of kind of fun, kind of casual orienting questions, showcase our awesome personalities. So I was able to give the listeners a brief background into both of you. Thank you for providing those biographies. Yet, it's still always helpful for the listeners to have you kind of share about yourselves, your interests, and so on. So let's start with a couple orientation questions, and we'll go with Angus first, largely because he's the first author on this paper, Jackie being the senior author on this paper. You come last, Jackie. But first, Angus, can you please tell us, me, the listeners, about your journey to the stage in sleep and circadian research? So actually, this is funny. I was talking to my supervisor, Dr. Sean Kane, here in Melbourne about this recently in that it's kind of an unusual path uh, in some ways in that it's, it's very linear. <laughs> so I actually, uh, Sean took me under his wing at the end of my first year of university. So I've just submitted my PhD 
and I've been sort of a member of the Monash University Sleep and Circadian Medicine Lab for I think about eight years now. So in a in a way, it's 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 a bit strange in that I hadn't really <laughs> done anything else in the research space other than um, some sort of like plant genetics work. But yeah, it was uh, fairly surprising. My uncle recalls driving me to the interview with Sean and me saying to him, you know. I just can't see myself being a sleep researcher. It sounds really boring. <laughs> and uh, he makes fun of me every Christmas for saying that because eight years later, here I am. <laughs> I completely understand. And the themes from others protrude and are shared in yours as well, as far as kind of the serendipity of how did I find myself in this space? And fast forward 10 years later, and I'm still in this space. It seems to be a very common theme across the board here. Yes. I'd just like to highlight, I think a large part of that is the supervisor role. I was very lucky to come under the mentorship of Sean, who is genuinely very interested in the development of students' careers and things like that, which I think, you know, can be very hit and miss in the research field. So, Well, good for you, Angus, to get that shameless plug in there for your mentor in life. Always good. But again, you've already submitted your thesis. I'm wistful and emotional because I've submitted my (laughs) thesis. (laughs) Hey, I'm trying to butter up my mentor and dissertation committee right now. So shout out to Dr. Plant. You're the greatest. Thank you. Allow me to progress forward. Now, Jackie, uh, same question to you. Can you tell us about your journey to this current point in sleep and circadian research? Sure. Yeah. So... I'm trained as a human geneticist, and so I kind of come from that side and not necessarily someone who was a sleep and circadian researcher. But during my undergraduate years, I was actually really fortunate that we had access to a class specifically about circadian rhythms. And now looking back, I realize that that's actually kind of rare on an undergraduate campus. So I encourage people, if there are classes that seem kind of interesting, but you don't know anything about it, to check it out. You never know where you will wind up in life. And I enjoyed it a lot. So flash forward years later, and I'm about to look for a postdoc. I finished up grad school, turned in my thesis, and I am on a road trip listening to NPR Science Friday. There is an interview that comes on, and it's about circadian rhythms and chronotype in men versus women. And I actually remember who was talking, and I've met that person and told them about their role in my career. And it really reminded me about the course that I enjoyed as an undergraduate. So I went looking for a postdoc intersecting human genetics and circadian rhythms. And I found it in the lab of Richa Saxena at Massachusetts General Hospital. And the rest is history from there. So mine was, yeah, quite a bit of serendipity and a a good moment on the radio in my yellow Ford Escape driving from New York City to Boston. (laughs) I love it. And you're spot on that it's often these like random classes that leave lasting imprints on our kind of vocational journeys. Uh, Hand up here, the listeners. Uh, have heard my story many a time about the random sleep and sleep disorders class that I happened to take during my junior year of undergrad at the University of Arizona, taught by the late, great Dr. Richard Bootson. Very fortunate there and paved the path to where I am now. And what a remarkable field in general. You know, we get geneticists, we get neurologists, people with these specialties just get integrated into this much larger umbrella of sleep and circadian research. And that's just what I love about the field is is the wealth and diversity of thought that we have and perspective. It's truly a beautiful thing. Jackie, staying staying with you right now, when you're not advancing the frontier of sleep and circadian research, what is it that you do with your spare time? Oh, that's a great question. 
So I enjoy baking. It's a fun hobby and I can integrate. I have two kids who are under the age of 10. So I like to bake together with them, especially, which is a lot of fun. They invent their own recipes. So I love entertaining that creativity. I also live in Boston along the ocean. So I have the great privilege to be able to take walks up this seaside cliff and in the right season, you can stand there, look out at the ocean and see whale spouts out in the distance. And it's just the most remarkable thing to do. And it's such a special privilege where I live. And so it's something I, I love to do is just to go out in early spring, bring some binoculars and look for whales. And then the last thing is really, I really enjoy cooking dinner with friends. So I'm a big community person and I love to gather people around and, and cooking and sitting around our table is one way that we really enjoy doing that. I have so many follow-up questions, but it's, but just to say, I, I also love cooking and there's been some ramblings. I don't know if you're attending APSS Sleep 2023 this year, uh, but we're thinking about having some sort of informal Iron Chef showdown, maybe something that I like usher in each year as an annual competition. So maybe you'll be a competitor in the future, Jackie. But as far as the whales go, that's awesome. Such remarkable creatures. And now I just need you to get a video for me in the future. Can I, can I request that? Absolutely. Yeah. It like blows my mind that walking distance from my house are these creatures like bigger than a bus, just kind of floating around out there. Unbelievable. Angus, do you do any whale watching or what do you do in your spare time when you're not, you know, progressing the frontier of sleep and circadian research? I have seen a whale um, off the coast of Rottnest Island, um, which is a, per uh, a little island off the coast of Perth there. I don't know if you guys have heard of it, but that was very lucky. Me and my friends did sort of circumnavigated it on a bike and parked our bikes at the end and saw a whale appear, which was really cool. But um, no, I guess my, you know, being truthful, my hobbies are kind of a little bit sort of I don't know, different. Um, I guess my main ho hobby is kind of reading philosophy and history, particularly like dialectical and historical materialism. I really like experimental electronic music, Aphex Twin. I really love the musician Sophie who passed away a few years ago. Hanging out with friends. <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> I do I do exercise, not in a sort of romantic way, sort of in a military militaristic way. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, there's a common theme among the guests that many have exemplary musical skills. Do you yourself, do you create any electronical music? Do you play any instruments? I don't actually. Yeah. My, my sister's actually an opera singer. So I always say she sort of absorbed all the um, musical talent in the womb um, yeah, pri prior to me coming out. And I got the good looks and intelligence. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and, and the creativity pours out of your fingertips into the keyboard for the statistical analyses. Yes, I'm glad you, yeah, that's very nice you acknowledge that. People, uh, yeah, perhaps don't see the creativity in science sometimes. Well, beautiful. And there's a lot of creativity for sure in this paper, which we'll get to, and I really appreciated it. But kind of moving along here with some of our kind of orienting questions. I added a, another one on that I haven't asked guests yet because I think it's a fun one. Angus, we'll start with you on this one. When you were a child, what did you actually aspire to be when you grew up? That's interesting. I was sort of very non-academic as a child. I was telling my friend actually the day that I submitted my PhD when I was in year nine. So most of the men kind of in my family, a lot of them are tradies, that kind of thing. And my mom sort of took me aside and she said, look, Angus, if you don't like school, you can drop out and become a plumber. 
And so that's sort of like, and I was, I was interested in that because in my family, it's sort of respectable and, you know, you can make a lot of money actually. But yeah, something sort of switched in the later years of my high school and I started to really enjoy kind of academics and yeah. Very cool. It found, seems like you found a good home, but if you weren't a sleep and circadian researcher right now as your vocation, then what career would you choose? You can choose anything. Okay. Like I said earlier, I did um, have a brief stint in sort of a plant genomics lab, which I really loved working with John Bowman, partially because we were able to sort of do these field trips out into kind of rainforest areas in Melbourne and quite a romantic profession, actually, although a bit more kind of solitary. I think I like working with humans a bit more than plants, but um, yeah. Very cool. Now, Jackie, same line of questions to you. When you were a child, what did you aspire to be when you grew up? Okay, so I had rather lofty goals. I either wanted to be the first female president or a detective or a grocery store cashier. And I actually like to think that I hit a little bit on all of those in that I think wanting to be the first female president is a leader as a woman, and I'm a PI of a lab. And so I kind of get to do that in some way, shape, or form. And I do think of kind of being a scientist as like a detective in a lot of ways and that we're like following leads and clues and where the research leads us. And then I have been known to use self-checkout at the grocery store, which is a little bit of a fulfillment of that wanting to be a cashier, even though my family thinks it takes like five times as long. And I'm like, stop it. I'm entering the clue number for bananas, please. So that's me trying to like hit on those aspirational goals as a kid. Oh, I think you nailed it. And the summary of of how the characteristics kind of came to be and intersected. I think it it makes a lot of sense to me. So well done there. This was not spontaneous in any capacity. And I too am a self-checkouter for life in any when affordable, right? It's a fun activity. It's like a game. How quickly can I do this? And, you know, do I remember the avocado PLU just off the top of my head? Because it's usually like what, like 4025 or 4046 or something like that. Clearly, I don't remember it. But yeah, it's a great game. So I share that with you. And you are a geneticist and a sleep and circadian researcher. But if you weren't in that line of work currently, you get to choose anything. You could watch whales if you wanted to. What would you choose as your vocation? Oh, goodness. I would love to watch whales as a career, but I'm actually not a very good swimmer. And I'm pretty sure that's like part of the qualifications there. But I think if I wasn't a sleep and circadian geneticist, I might be a clinical geneticist. So on the medical side of things. I, to be honest, didn't know that that was a career option until I got to this point and started working in a hospital and met people who do that job. I am a first generation college student, so there was a lot I did not know. And I'm by far and away the only person to have an advanced degree in my family. And the only reason I knew that like a PhD was an option is that my best friend growing up, her dad had a PhD and he was the only one I ever knew. And that was like the reason I knew that you could get a PhD, but that was really, so I like to go back and I've been back to my high school that I graduated from and I tell them what I do and I tell them all the other things that I've seen people do now because I want people to know what's out there to the best that I can. Love it. And I think you could still be a whale watcher without being a proficient swimmer. You know, I don't think Michael Phelps' skill set is is necessary. They do make rafts boats, flotation devices that could assist in that capacity. And I saw the movie Free Willy. 
I may have seen Free Willy one, two, and three, and and that boy did not swim very well. The whale usually moved him around. So maybe that's the relationship you need to build there. You just need to find something synergistic that you can provide in return. I appreciate the encouragement there. <laughs> Stay tuned. Now, when kind of inviting both of you on as guests, which again, really appreciate your participation, it just got me thinking as I was kind of looking into the available information online as to where each of you are geographically and also in your various career journeys. Uh, and it just got me thinking about that this is a kind of a unique collaboration, or at least from my perspective, it was, you know, Angus being more junior in a trainee role and Jackie more kind of in a in a senior role at this point or transitioning into that as a researcher. I don't really know how to describe kind of that that area, if you will, but clearly geographical differences with Angus being in Melbourne, Australia and, and Jackie being in Boston, Massachusetts. So I just want to kind of bluntly put this out there. How did this collaboration develop? We'll start with Angus on this one. <laughs> Actually, again, I can sort of thank my supervisor here in Melbourne, Sean Kane, for that, in that he was from Boston originally. So my understanding is that Jackie, uh, Richard Saxena and Sean had some relationship prior to him coming to Melbourne. And I, I don't think I mentioned, but my undergraduate and uh, honours theses were sort of at the confluence of genetics and psychology the whole way through. So I double majored in both. And so Sean is a circadian biologist, started out in animal research and transitioned into humans, sort of pure, mostly purely sleep and circadian rhythms. And so I think when I started my PhD with him, he wanted to give me alternative supervision that would help develop their skills in genetics and proposed developing this relationship with Rich and Jackie. So Rich and Jackie actually co-supervised my thesis, which I submitted yeah, it was very generative and very grateful for that. Very cool. Jackie, do you have anything you want to add on there as far as the formulation of the relationship? Or do you think Angus covered it? Yeah, I, well, I'll just say I think we were both a lot earlier in our careers when we first met. I was a postdoc and Angus, I don't even know, were you a master's student back then? This was at least five years ago. And our mentors have been collaborators for a long time. And so Angus came one summer to learn genetics from... Richa Saxena and I, and I was directly supervising Angus, and we had a great time. I think I learned a lot as well, but Angus is so easy to mentor and teach because he's really quick to onboard new concepts and like really excited about what we're learning. And it's great to mentor someone like that because it pushes you as well to dig deeper into what you're doing and answer the questions that you're being asked that sometimes you don't even know the answer to yourself, but you try. And I think Really, we've kind of grown in our academic careers together and we have mentorship meetings at like 7 p.m. Boston time and things like that that are challenging when you're having collaborations across the globe. But I think it really makes the depth and breadth of these collaborations so much better when you have a variety of perspectives on things. And so it's really nice. Angus is coming now next month to join my lab as a postdoc. And so that kind of feels full circle a little bit in our relationship. And I'm really excited for what the next phase of our career growth together is going to look like. Uh, it's super groovy. And, you know, I just for my kind of brief overlap thus far with Angus, I can already pick up on all those kind of meritorious traits that you were describing there. Angus, your brain seems very, very, very outstanding. And the personality seems to match as well. So I'm elated to hear that the two of you have this longstanding relationship. It's produced 
this line, this awesome manuscript that we're going to dive into. And there's much more to come as you come and bring your skill set into the United States and work with Jackie in this new chapter of your life. So congratulations to both of you. And also, it's a big win for the field because, again, I think this research is incredible. And obviously, there's more work that needs to be done here. And so the two of you together can tackle that. So that's outstanding. And I think that's a good primer into kind of your backgrounds and personality, interests outside of sleep and circadian research. And we'll kind of transition more to the scientific domain by going into one of my favorite segments of the interviews, which is the keyword association. So strictly a word association, I'll say a word or a phrase, and you'll say the first thing that comes to mind just with a scientific spin, hence the name keyword association. And some of these were the keywords in your manuscript, and some were just things that were in my wonky brain that I felt were relevant. And I'll pass it back and forth. So we'll give Angus the microphone first. Uh, Angus, are you ready for the keyword association? I am. Let's do it. First phrase, if you will, or term for the keyword association, circadian rhythm. I would say it's an evolutionarily basal or early process. I like it. Jackie, when I say UK biobank, what comes to mind? Oh, career building. <laughs> really, I mean, that's been the bread and butter of a lot of the larger work that I've done over the last couple of years. So thank you, UK biobank and collaborators. Yeah, very rich data set. And you've definitely leveraged it across a couple projects. And I even almost formulated a collaboration with you looking at it in the context of hypersomnia years ago. If I ever circle back to that ambition, you are certainly the person I will contact there. Angus, light sensitivity. The non-visual type is important for health, <laughs> in particular mental health. <laughs> I fully agree. And being in Madison, Wisconsin here too, where we don't have as much light at certain times of the year and things, I've got my circadian light box here too mimic as best it can, things like that, as I know it has major impact on my mood. Jackie, switching back to you, when I say single nucleotide polymorphism, or SMP, what comes to mind? Okay, so the first thing that comes to mind is not scientific, and it's SNPs, always just makes me think of scissors. <laughs> <laughs> but scientifically, I just think of genetic variation and human beauty, kind of the, the array of things that have arisen from genetic variation. Beautiful. Angus, what about genome-wide interaction study? Yeah, I guess there is a sort of association for me of genetic sensitivity, which I think we'll get into, to environmental variation. Yeah, we'll probably get into it, but I think there's a sort of maybe lay view of genetics as not considering the environment enough, but genetic effects are always on a background of an environment and interact with the environment, which is important for our field of circadian rhythm. Well said. Basically, what I'm hearing is that the GWAS side of it, the genome-wide association studies, don't really tell the whole story and may be missing some really key elements that are moderating effects in certain relationships. And I'm sure, as you alluded to, we'll dive into all that here. So I think that does a really nice job of revving our engines. So as I mentioned in the introduction here, the orientation for today's episode... We're going to focus on a recent investigation published by both of you and your colleagues, published in Sleep, and it's entitled Genome-Wide Gene-by-Environment Study of Time Spent in Daylight, 
and chronotype identifies emerging genetic architecture underlying light sensitivity. So initially, I'm going to ask Angus and Jackie here to provide us a little bit of a 10,000-foot view of the investigation. We'll talk about kind of what prompted the investigation, what sort of big-picture methodology was utilized, findings and implications. And then we'll dive deeper into the kind of granularity. And as I was talking with Jackie and Angus before sitting down to actually record, we could spend a day unpacking the greatness of this manuscript, the next steps, the various trade-offs and choices of methodology. But we don't have a day here. We probably have about an hour or so. So we'll try and stick on kind of the bigger picture stuff. But I'll encourage the listeners if they have any questions to follow up with Angus and Jackie post talk because they're a wealth of knowledge. And I think there's a lot to, to chew on here. So start with this. Angus, when kind of thinking about the earlier stage of the investigation, when you were kind of preparing to even dive into this, what fueled you to perform this research? And did you have any particular hypotheses as you were approaching this study? Yeah, so I think if you take a look at my kind of, sort of very short Google Scholar profile <laughs> as a, uh, a um, nascent um, researcher, you'll see that I think half the articles have the word light sensitivity in the, in the first three words or something like that. So yeah, the, the vast majority of my work in Sean Kane's lab has looked at examining usually in sort of more intensive small end designs under highly controlled laboratory conditions, light sensitivity under usually melatonin suppression protocols, that kind of thing. And like I said earlier, I was very interested in genetics, as Jackie mentioned, and gave more detail to when I visited the lab there, I was really curious about the UK Biobank and how certain measures contained within it, though imperfect, as I'm sure we'll discuss, could help us assess similar questions that we were doing in the lab, maybe provide further insight into the epidemiology of light sensitivity and its association with certain health and mental health outcomes. So yeah, when I got to the lab, I, I was very new to the UK Biobank and sort of overwhelmed by the existence of this thing. I think, like Jackie said, it's a, it's a miracle almost for science and for humanity in terms of just the wealth of knowledge that it's produced. And I basically was like trawling through it for anything related to circadian rhythms and light. And so, yeah, there's sort of two aspects to that. Probably the first, which is the focus of this paper, is a sort of subjective self-reported time spent in outdoor light variable. It's reported for the winter and the summer. And in our study, we use sort of an average of those reports. But essentially, I knew that if we had this variable, we could look at how genetic variants moderate the relationship between time spent in outdoor light and chronotype. And that this moderation effect, with caveats, essentially is measuring a genetic pro genetically proxied light sensitivity. Uh, so if a genetic variant is associated with an earlier chronotype under the same amount of daytime light exposure, we would suggest that that genetic, genetic variant is associated with increased light sensitivity and so on. So yeah, I guess the, the link is, is I was interested in light sensitivity and health and genetics and was yeah, able to put all of these things together with this paper. Beautiful. And now that I kind of get a better sense of the journey that the two of you have shared, Jackie, even being principally involved in your kind of advanced graduate school training and your, in your thesis here, uh, I'm just curious, Jackie, did 
did this kind of organically evolve during your mentoring discussions with Angus or did Angus come to you with this idea? Did you kind of being the president of the UK Biobank, the first woman president of the UK Biobank, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but it's been said. (laughs) Did you kind of pitch to Angus that this might be a rich resource that could help answer the question? How did that come to be? Yeah, I think it kind of organically evolved, Angus, if I remember correctly. Years ago, we started with a GWAS of chronotype, or sometimes we call it diurnal preference, maybe to be more accurate, in the UK Biobank. And so we knew that like, this is a good trait for environmental influences. I mean, there's so much external influence on circadian rhythms. And so to say that it's primarily genetically driven is clearly not capturing the entire story, nor accurate. So we knew that this was a good trait for environmental by gene interactions. And so we began to investigate light measures in the UK Biobank, talking with Sean and Angus about what ways are there to capture light. And this was a learning experience for me to really start to understand light and how we measure light in the circadian system. And so I think it's been a really nice project because I've been able to learn in a lot of different dimensions and to kind of ask ourselves, these kind of messy questions in larger scale biobanks, we have to convince ourselves every step of the way that this is capturing something that's worthwhile and represents the thing we think it's capturing. And we did that with the GWAS of chronotype from the beginning in that the genetic factors we found really were similar between the UK biobank and 23andMe, which are two very different large scale biobanks. And the question is even asked in different ways. And the fact that those genetic factors underlying it were remarkably similar actually kind of surprised us all. And to see that the genetics pointed back to circadian rhythms over and over again also was kind of a reassuring factor when you're doing a GWAS of chronotype. So I think part of it is also every step we take asking ourselves, are these measures that are in these large scale biobanks going to get us somewhere and answer some science that we think it might be able to, albeit not perfectly and not how I would design it if I could from the ground up, but it's here. Well said, especially at the end. And I'm sure we'll touch upon that. We dive deeper into obviously the challenges and complexities of this type of research that are faced. And again, the trade-offs that one has to make across the board when selecting variables, things like that. But if I remember correctly, the story kind of centers on and and builds from this robust established relationship between daylight exposure and diurnal preference. I also like that word as well, whereby kind of greater exposure to light robustly predicts greater morningness, if I remember correctly. And that's been replicated many a time. And you even replicated again, I believe, in this these analyses as well. And it builds upon that kind of thinking about that relationship. And so largely from a modeling perspective, the the outcome variable of interest here is that diurnal preference or chronotype or however we want to call it in this particular investigation and whatever manner in which we're characterizing or measuring, we can hem and haw about what term we actually want to use, but one's circadian characteristics, if you will, as our outcome variable. And then we have these kind of SMP iteratively being run through as a focal variable, the amount of daylight exposure that's averaged across the two seasons and then an interaction term. Is that basically our our major regression model here? Yes, yes, well done. You're right. The base sort of main effect is this established association between increased daylight exposure, which will tend to overlap with the advancing portion of the PRC. 
There's other kind of interpretations of it as well. Increased daylight exposure probably reduces your sensitivity to the delaying effects of evening and nightlight exposure. So that could be partially part of the relationship there as well. But essentially, the idea is that in the interaction model, so adding the daylight time SNP interaction to predict chronotype, we're looking at whether any genetic variation, as Jackie said earlier, common genetic variation we call single nucleotide polymorphisms, that those genetic effects are measuring differences in light sensitivity at the genetic level. A SNP that is associated with an increased or a stronger slope of the relationship between daylight and chronotype, we would say is associated with increased light sensitivity and vice versa, a SNP that is associated with a shallower relationship between daylight and chronotype would be associated with decreased light sensitivity. Beautiful. And I I think you did a a really nice job in the manuscript describing that because even my infantile brain was able to pick that up. So you did a great job there. You did a bunch of other kind of secondary analyses, you know, pathway analyses, correlations with mental health outcomes. And I encourage the, the readers to dive deep into those methods. But I think just for sake of time and everything, what, what generally, Angus, did you find, you know, from kind of the focal analyses and then kind of the follow-up analyses as well? So the primary analysis consisted of what was one of your keyword Uh, responses earlier called a genome-wide interaction study. So um, some of your listeners may be familiar with a genome-wide association study. So that examines essentially the main effect association of genetic variants with a particular outcome, for instance, chronotype as Jackie's um, extensive work and insomnia, that, that kind of thing has done. This study is a little bit different. As I've described, we wanted to examine genome wide interactions with daylight exposure. And so basically we tested 14 million locations across the human genome in roughly 280,000 people in the UK biobank. The association or the interaction of these genetic variants with daylight exposure in predicting chronotype. So that basically gives us a genome-wide scan for signals of genetic effects that could be associated with light sensitivity. We found one genome-wide significant hit. This was mapped to a G protein uh, coupled uh, receptor related gene uh, called AIL14EP. And this SNP was associated with increased expression of the gene in the retina and the brain. Yeah, so that is the main sort of genome-wide interaction study result. We followed this up with a series of secondary analyses that further explored the genetic architecture of, right, which basically integrates all the associations across the genome. But yeah, maybe I can get into those in subsequent questions. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. You know, Jackie, do you have anything you think worth adding on to as far as the findings? Or do you think Angus did a, a nice job kind of steering us into the deeper dive? No, I think he did a fantastic job steering us in. I would agree with that as well. So why don't we get our weed whackers out and go a little bit deeper into the weeds, if you will. Now, this line of work does seem to be when we're using these kind of archival big data data sets, there's a series of trade-offs here. We've alluded to some of them already when it comes to like the variables we're kind of stuck with per se, based on what's available and trying to make the best proxy, if we will, into what we actually want to measure or wish were included. And I have some specific questions about that coming up, but I just want to start principally launching off with kind of your sample formation. And I think you, in the manuscript, the UK Biobank data itself includes 502,000 UK residents. 
but you winnowed the sample to focus strictly on white individuals with British ancestry, which narrowed it down to 280,897. Still, in my eyes, remarkable, huge. I study this very not so common disorder. And if I can get a sample of 60, I'm really happy and I'm always underpowered. So I understand that genetics is a whole different domain, if you will, when it comes to power analyses and detecting effects and so on and so forth. And are they actually meaningful? But I was just curious, what was the rationale for removing kind of nearly half of the available data? And maybe we'll start with Jackie on this one. Okay, so that's a great question. And I will say that I think the field of genetics as a whole is really moving forward using multiple different ancestries now, but we have in the past excessively focused on European ancestry, and that's definitely something we need to change. Clearly, a lot of that has been driven by this issue of what we call power. So a larger sample size is necessary to detect small effect sizes, which genetic changes are typically small effect sizes. If they were much larger, they probably would have been selected out in a population across time, if we think about kind of evolutionarily how we wound up with these diverse genomes. But specifically in this investigation, we wound up on our sample size by actually there were two factors that were not related to the ancestry that actually drove the sample size the most. And I think they were one, the availability of the self-reported data on outdoor time in light. So that question was not answered by everyone. So that really was one of the bigger limiting factors. And the other is for the methodology that was available at the time for gene by environment interaction studies, you needed an unrelated sample, so genetically unrelated. And so restricting the UK Biobank to an unrelated sample actually gets sort of, I think, about 130,000 samples or something along that line. So those are the two factors that really impacted the sample size the most. Certainly restricting ourselves to the European sample size, the European ancestry sample size further reduces that number, but those other two factors are the biggest ones. And I'll just say from the jump that, you know, because you need this larger sample size, that's why a lot of times that the largest ancestry group in the UK Biobank is this white British ancestry. Um, and the other groups represent about 50K in total when you add them all up together. And what happens in a genetic investigation is that you want to be testing differences in your outcome variables and not differences that are purely driven by genetic structure. And so by limiting to one ancestry group, you can eliminate some of those more spurious effects you might find that are not related to what you're testing, but actually related to differences in genetic architecture based on ancestry. And so that's why when we do these analysis, we try to do them stratified by ancestry group. And hopefully in the future, we can move into the other ancestry groups and add those findings into what we're doing. And that actually sets up what will be part of Angus's postdoc work moving forward. Well, I love it. A little teaser, if you will. And yeah, so if I'm, I'm kind of hearing this correctly, the decision, if you will, to focus creating a group that is much more homogenous was intentional to improve any likelihood of detecting an effect and reducing the noise in a sample. Because I can see, you know, criticism being like, well, you're removing heterogeneity. Isn't inter-individual differences really important? And I think both of you, as I'm seeing head nods, you're like, yes, that is really important. But this is a different line of work than, you know, some other lines. And we need to really remove a lot of the variability so that we can drill down the actual valid relationships first before exploring in different populations the various effects. Is, is that is that right, Angus, what I'm hearing? 
Yeah, definitely. And you raise a very good point, though, because this is the procedure we took with controlling for population stratification and kinship in the paper is sort of standard in the GWAS field. However, and as Jackie says, that there are developments in methodology towards integrating multi-ancestry analyses for particular traits. I think that's probably of the utmost important for our field, considering that light is the primary and training stimulus uh, to the circadian clock, and that differs dramatically along a latitudinal climb. And so the geography of populations is actually really important to their evolution of their biology, their circadian biology, and therefore a lot of the traits we're looking at, ancestry differences are quite important and I think need to be studied, but they sort of need to be studied um, concertedly. Uh, It would be wrong to include them in this case without taking appropriate care, as Jackie said, because it could just generate spurious or confounded results that are the result of population history rather than true genetic effects. And so as Jackie mentioned, my postdoc is actually largely going to be focused on multi-ancestry analyses of circadian traits, trying to address this particular question. Very cool. And I will stay tuned for those results. And uh, we'll have to have you back on once you publish those in Sleep or Sleep Advances. Shameless plug for those journals. But uh, yeah, you, you hit on a key word for me, because I have certainly spent far less time thinking about these dynamics than the two of you. But in preparation for this, just kind of thinking about what would shape us, the inter-individual differences from an ancestral background. I I definitely landed on kind of geography and the different variations in kind of climate and light exposure that your ancestral history would have afforded in shaping your genome across evolution, if you will. And, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, because I probably am. And this is a very elementary way of looking at it. But I would imagine a reasonable hypothesis would be that those individuals who come from have ancestors that come from climates with less sunlight exposure probably have more sensitivity to available light than those that come from areas with abundance of light, say like Phoenix, Arizona, or something like that. Is that like a fair hypothesis to land on? I think so. And also light sensitivity, I think, would be important in that, that context in that the photo period changes dramatically across the seasons, the further you are from the equator. So having that lability of the clock is much more essential in those under those conditions. So yeah, we would we would hypothesize that humans and hominids <laughs> that evolved in sort of more northern or southern latitudes would tend to have greater light sensitivity or be selected for greater light sensitivity. I love that the two of you are pushing this line of work forward. We'll get into clinical and research implications coming up here soon, but I I just get really excited about potentially having a better ability to personalize these types of recommendations when it comes to chronotherapy, not just on like timing per se, but dosage from like a Lux perspective, if you will, based on anything. Because right now we're not really personalizing it based on it. We're just like, here's the light box, go do these things. And I think we could do better instead of this individual didn't respond, they must be treatment resistant. Maybe it's something else that we just haven't unearthed yet. And it could be a genetic architecture difference. It could be who knows, right? And so I love that you're pulling back the layers there. And I think that kind of transitions us nicely into a question that I go back and forth on. And and I apologize if I, I missed it in the article at all. 
From my eyes, it seemed like the investigation itself was principally focused on the genome per se, or entirely focused on the genome. Did you look at epigenetic differences at all? Was that data available, Angus? Uh, yeah, it's a really interesting question in that, no, <laughs> um, this, this article didn't address that. But it's very interesting line of research and suggestion. I actually haven't really given that much thought to epigenetic scans in particular related to circadian rhythms. Of course, you know, our entire development is governed by epigenesis. Like, I guess you could say in a way, you know, our genome-wide significant hit is involved in that. It was associated, uh, this is sort of getting in the weeds of the article, but it was associated with essentially reduced methylation at the promoter of the AIL14EP gene, which would be associated with increased gene expression on average. Um, it was also associated with a more open chromatin structure, which would permit increased expression again. So I, I guess in a way, we sort of indirectly measured a SNP that seems to be associated with the epigenetic regulation of a gene that, you know, putatively may be involved in a light sensitivity process. But yeah, I haven't actually considered an epigenome-wide scan or something like that. Um, well, I, th I appreciate you providing kind of clarity on, on the manuscript as well, because that's where I kind of got lost. I, you know, this is where my background in trading and in, in genomics and genetics kind of dies. I saw the words methylation and I saw, you know, histone modification sites and whatever. And I was like, okay, so there is kind of an epigenetic feel here, but it didn't seem to go like deep into the epigenome. And for me, I think it is an important thing here. And I, I want to pass the microphone on to Jackie on this one with her expertise in these areas. And, you know, I, I wonder, Jackie, one, do you know of of any research that's kind of explored the epigenome in this area? And what are your thoughts on kind of the genome maybe being this like imprinting trait of light sensitivity versus the epigenome maybe shedding insight into kind of our flexibility to respond changing environments, if you will? And I'll just pause there for a second. Yeah, I think that's a great question and incredibly important to think about because I think when we talk about such an environmentally driven trait, so environmental light, it makes complete sense that the epigenome would play a role given like the time scale of epige epigenetic modifications. So I kind of tend to think of them as large time, long evolutionary histories, sort of changes in the genome. And these more responsive, shorter term changes would be things that are imprinted into the epigenome. And certainly, I think there was a review article I read recently that was talking about susceptibility and resilience and the role of epigenetics in that. And I remember they discussed a little bit about, uh, I think it was CPG islands in the beginning of the MTNR1A gene, which is melatonin, one of the melatonin receptor genes, and that there was higher methylation levels associated with genetic variants in the region, and that could be potentially increased circadian sensitivity to nocturnal lights. And that's one of the, the times I actually have seen some sort of epigenome and talking about light sensitivity, because I don't think there has been a genome-wide approach. And so definitely, you know, shout out to the other ohms out there, the epigenome, the microbiome, the proteome. I think all these levels of data really need to get layered together. The limiting factor is that all these data sets are slowly, slowly coming online in these large-scale biobanks. And as that data gets produced, the real challenge is sort of what is the appropriate statistical way to approach these analyses? Do we have the tools? Do we have to develop the tools? And so something like looking at, I think I've seen a study once in asthma that was an interaction of the epigenome and the genome. 
And so I think that is really complex and we need to talk about what kind of statistical power do we need to do something like that? How do we define the barriers of the genes and the epigenetic effects and, and the distance of cis versus uh, trans effects? And so, you know, I think it's coming. I think we are really like about to be able to tee these things up. And I think we really always consider ourselves sort of in the field of sleep and circadian, like at the beginning of this more common human genetic variation investigation. And so there's so many places, which is very exciting for it to go. And so future students shout out if you want a place to come and do work. There's so much to do in human genetics and genetic variation in the field of sleep and circadian rhythms. So please come. Yeah, so I think that's definitely a place that we have yet to go. And it's really important to mention that, you know, the, the genome is just one of the ohms. We need to get them all in there. Absolutely spectacular. I love the shout out to the ohms, if you will. And I was just thinking that now I need to build like a meditation around the proteome and the microbiome and just like really leverage that. And I'll stop with my terrible pun at this point. But yeah, I mean, it does seem to be probably some sort of like interaction between these two ohms, the genome and the epigenome, if you will, where we certainly probably want, we're definitely primed. We have this innate sensitivity driven by our various components in our genome. But to me, it does seem like a trait that you'd want some flexibility in, that we wouldn't want to be rigidly bound, which as you pointed out, Jackie, then starts to implicate the epigenome and some other aspects as well. So a very complicated ecosystem with you, if you will, or ohm system, if you will. And I'm sure that we'll keep peeling back the layers. And I love that you kind of also alluded to the ever-evolving space of this line of research currently. And it's still in its relative infancy. And we need to iron out methodology and figure out, yeah, this finding is cool, but is the methodology even like worthwhile? Or do we just like create something? And that's often how fields progress is somebody's like, let's try this and let's try that and let's try this. And eventually there's consensus that, well, that approach was dumb and this approach makes the most sense and let's push forward there. It kind of seems like that's where we're at currently, but it's a fast moving field. And I'm sure a lot of this will be tightened up over the coming years. So I'm excited to see what comes from there. As excited as I am for kind of this field and findings when it comes to genetic research, epigenetic research, you know, I think the microbiome is a little bit easier actually of inducing effects and analyzing kind of causal relations. But when it comes to like genetics and epigenetics right now, it really seems to be at least duck, maybe in like a limbo state of correlation or associations. And it's, it's really difficult to actually extend to more causal relations. And Angus, I'm already getting the strong sense that you have a very brilliant, powerful, creative brain. So I'm sure you've thought about this to some extent. I know Jackie has, but we'll start with you, Angus. Where do we go from here to kind of improve our confidence as these as causal findings in relation to this investigation and just kind of genetic findings across the board? Yeah, that's a excellent question. And I think provides a good landing or jumping off pad for me to discuss kind of the continuation of the results from the initial GWIS, you know, which did this genome-wide scan, roughly, you know, 14 million associations of this interaction. We found one SNP that sort of crossed this genome-wide significance threshold, which is sort of quite a stringent threshold for detecting a true effect. However, we followed this up with a series of analyses that you've mentioned that basically integrate the information across the entire genome and examine whether there's what we call enrichment in certain pathways 
genes, cell types for the trait that we're looking at, which is in this case, light sensitivity. And so what that enables us to do is essentially, again, this is correlational, but examine the association of the trait in general with known genetic pathways, cell types and genes. So for instance, one of our primary findings was that there was a genome-wide significant association of RGWIS with the G protein coupled glutamate receptor signaling pathway. And so that was a really important finding for providing, I guess, some sort of reverse validity or something for the, the methodological approach, because it essentially says that the genome-wide signal that we're picking up does have something to do with genetic and biological pathways that are important for light sensitivity. So that G-protein coupled glutamate um, receptor signaling pathway is essential for photic input from the retina via the retina hypothalamic tract to the SCN for the transmission of light information and therefore the regulation of the clock. And then moving on from there, we also found enrichment of um, the GWIS in a single cell study that examined various hypothalamic cell subtypes, and we found enrichment for the GWIS in uh, PER2-positive circadian cell subtype. So that kind of thing, again, correlative, provides further shapes the the study and gives us information about the the GWIS that was done and its sort of putative relation to light and light sensitivity as a circadian phenotype under heavy air quotes. (laughs) And then from there, that brings us to the genetic correlations, which I don't know if your audience would be familiar with, but this is a technique that essentially, instead of sort of looking at a phenotypic correlation, which is, you know, taking two traits within a large group of individuals and looking at their association, this is looking at across the genome, you know, that 14 14 million associations that we found, how do the associations with light sensitivity correlate with genetic associations for other traits? So essentially what this allows you to do is look at the overlap in the genetic architecture of particular traits. And basically what we found is, I think, another sort of finding which pointed to the validity of the kind of nascent genetic architecture that we identified is that greater light sensitivity was associated quite strongly genetically with later chronotypes. So what that means is the genetic effects in Jackie's work, so I was using Jackie's GWAS in that case, the genetic effects for later chronotype overlap quite strongly with the genetic effects for greater light sensitivity. And this brings me to a point I made at the start of the episode about the, I mean, obviously this is, whole study takes in the importance of the environment, but I think when you're considering, you know, what does light sensitivity look like? And, you you know, I was looking at daytime light exposure and chronotype, how come greater light sensitivity would be associated with later chronotype? I think that finding makes sense in our particular sort of historical and social and industrial conditions whereby we live under electric lighting where daytime light has been greatly diminished and nighttime and the day has been artificially extended into our night such that humans today are exposed to orders of magnitude brighter light at night than they were historically. And so under that context, having greater light sensitivity uh, would tend to delay your clock and produce a more evening type chronotype. Uh, I'm getting to your question. I just wanted to sort of fill out those kind of analyses because I think they give a lot of detail to the study. And I think maybe you're a bit, a bit, 
complicated and uh, are worth explaining in, in words, particularly the genetic correlations. But yes, the, the entire nature of this research is correlational, essentially. We can't uh, sort of say causally that, for instance, you know, we also found genetic correlations of greater light sensitivity with shorter sleep. I think one of the most remarkable findings of this work, uh, it was significant, but not after Bonferroni adjustment, was a very, very strong correlation between increased light sensitivity and PTSD risk. And this is something I'm very interested in because I think the study of circadian rhythms in PTSD is quite nascent, but all the studies that are out there show that it is certainly an important factor with light therapy being effective in treating condition and sleep interventions that target light also being effective in treating conditions. So with that said, these results don't say that there is a causal relationship between light sensitivity and PTSD. How can we address that in future research? The ideal is basically extending the methodology, the sample size that we have today. As Jackie mentioned, there were um, sort of computational limitations of the present approach whereby we weren't able to account for cryptic relatedness in the structure. So that sort of took out, I think, more than 100,000 people. There have since been advanced, since we wrote the paper, there have since been advances in methodology that will enable us to do that in the future. So I think certainly we're going to try and replicate this study in a larger sample using a sort of mixed model approach that enables you to do that. If we are able to generate enough genome-wide significant hits we would be able to potentially use a technique called Mendelian randomization. I don't know if you've, you've heard of this before. Again, also complex. I'm s sitting here basically kind of like an interview with my future postdoc supervisor, <laughs> testing my knowledge of all these concepts. But essentially, it enables you to use genetics to perform a sort of pseudo-randomized control trial by the random assortment of alleles in the population. And so if we find that, say, there's 10 SNPs that are robustly, robustly associated with increased light sensitivity, we may be able to look, using Mendelian randomization, at genetically proxying light sensitivity, basically sorting people into a high genetic load for light sensitivity and a low genetic load for light sensitivity, and then comparing them across outcomes like PTSD to see if there is you know, a putative causal relationship there. So that's something that I love about genetics is that not only are you understanding or able to learn more about human biology, which is at the base, very, very interesting. It has huge implications for medicine and epidemiology. That was a very long answer to <laughs> your question. No, a beautiful one. And, and I think it Transitions nice into the next topic I wanted to get to anyways, but I, I thought you covered my question perfectly, truthfully, because what I kind of read into the paper was you did what you really can do right now to provide as much supportive evidence for the validity of this finding by using multiple lines of converging evidence, including theory, right? It's nice when it maps onto a pathway that makes sense in kind of the big picture thought here of kind of retinal sensitivity or the retinal processes being involved with one's light sensitivity. It just makes a lot of sense. And then, of course, the genetic correlations pack onto that. All of that comes together and you have converging evidence. Again, it doesn't ever say 100% causal, and that's going to be a more complicated process. And maybe I'll ask Jackie on this one. Do you, do you see a future world of science where we're going to apply like gene editing approaches 
or is that going to get too ethically messy to actually induce like causal changes on this front? Yeah, so I'll first put this a little bit by saying that there's an entire field of scientific ethics and lots of current ongoing discussions, which are very important and need to be had about the role of gene editing and as a society and, and how do we accept that and where are the limits and, and how do we talk about that? Uh, so that is an ongoing discussion. And it's very important. We need to keep an eye on that. But I think really, I would just say for like where we need to maybe just get next is that in order to enable these kind of investigations and to understand this better, I mean, we really, I think, need to progress on, on two ends simultaneously, which is first really to get into this depth of, of phenotype is to really enable new ways to, at scale, objectively measure light exposure, light history, what's happening with someone, and also circadian measurements at the same time at scale. And a lot of what I'm working on in my independent line of research is to like how we enable these kind of at-home studies and how can we validate dim light melatonin collected at home to really like, we can't enable these large-scale genetic studies. They need to be large-scale. So we need large-scale phenotyping methods and to really kind of apply that line of thinking a little bit more in sleep and circadian uh, measurements, which a lot of very wonderful people are working on as well. So I think that's one place that I see the field progressing in, in the near future as well. I mean, you know, Jesse, your work is along those lines too, but this intersection of affordable wearable devices that are accurate wearable devices that we're all convinced that are measuring the thing we think they're measuring and also that are not crazy expensive because if I mail it to a participant and it never comes back, you know, so there's kind of this intersection of all of those things that are, that are at play. And that's certainly, I think, something that is uniquely being worked out in the field. And on the other side, there's really this push in genetics and genomics to have this conversation about what is the role of genetics. And I think I have seen genetics now applied in, in other fields like cardiometabolic disorders for new therapeutics that have been developed for polygenic risk scores to predict an individual's risk for certain things and, and to intervene and to try trials. But we haven't really done a ton of that in circadian rhythms research yet. And so there's steps we need to take to get there. And one of those is definitely broadening the ancestry of our investigations, or we risk really introducing a lot of bias in the clinical populations that are being served. And to me, that's something that kind of keeps me up at night. And I don't want my research to be something that's applicable only to a subset of the population. I really want it to be something where all patient voices are heard in the things we develop, where all people are really included in the therapeutics and, and the interventions that are coming out. So for me, I think that's something that we really, before we can even discuss gene editing in different things, we really need to make sure that the research we're doing broadens the phenotypes and broadens the genetic inclusivity of what we're doing as sort of near next steps. Well said. And, you know, in our show outline here, we had some devoted sections to actually talking about clinical and research implications and kind of the general challenges and barriers that are faced in this line of research. And I generally think peripherally, we covered those pretty good just from kind of the other response that we've given. And I also think you took one of my favorite closure questions to the manuscript as far as where do we go from here? I think that's already been organically answered. And I look forward to the kind of multi-ancestral approach and to see what emerges from that. So instead, I think we'll kind of transition to, to closing down the interview, if that's okay with both of you. And I just want to thank soon-to-be, currently, 
uncertain status of Dr. Angus Burns and Dr. Jacqueline Jackie Lane for joining me today. You know, I'll ask both of you if you're comfortable to uh, pass along some social media handles or whatever that can plug in the show notes for listeners to, to pester you with more of their questions. But I have to ask, and I'll start with Angus first, if you are afforded an unlimited amount of funding, no constraints at all, no barriers, nothing, you get to do whatever you want with it to explore a singular sleep and or circadian research topic, then what would you investigate? Uh, yeah, I wonder if Jackie and I would say a similar thing. I think we both just sort of desperately want better circadian phenotyping for genetics studies. Yeah, I'm not, um, yeah, I don't know if I've given enough caveats across this interview. I'm aware of the sort of huge limitations of using self-report measures essentially across the board in this study. It's a very large sample, interesting techniques, GWAS, that kind of thing. But there are huge limitations for using proxy measures of essentially circadian phase, which we're trying to do with chronotype, proxy measures of daylight exposure. So I think if I had, yeah, if I had my way, some, um, you know, genome-wide association study on phase shifting in 100,000 people, (laughs) if that's possible, you know, considering a six-day protocol or something like that to (laughs) pull each set, each end of one off. So, <laughs> I love it. And I'm with you both as far as the modern technology affording the opportunity to better analyze the variables that we want to capture. I do think we're not far away from that. Many people nowadays are walking around with continuous blood glucose monitors. And I don't think it's far off in the future where our wearable devices will have the ability to capture either directly or indirectly, biosignals that will really improve our characterization of circadian phenotyping. Because I'm with both of you. We rely way too heavily on the reduced morning eveningness questionnaire and the Munich chronotype questionnaire. These are helpful measures that can serve as lenses or proxies into one circadian phase. But I think, again, as Jackie pointed out earlier, we're capturing diurnal preference, which may actually be missing a big, big important variable here, which is Does your diurnal preference actually match your biology? And that's where I'm really interested as a training clinician, because I think that's where probably a lot of issues from a psychological and physical perspective emerge. So I think we'll eventually be able to resolve that and kind of progress forward, not just in the circadian space, but across the board to have better clarity on these actual measurements. We're not there yet. Now, Jackie, same question for you. Unlimited funding singular sleep and circadian research topic, no barriers, no constraints. What are you analyzing? Yeah, I think mine is maybe even a little broader than that. And it's looking at misdiagnosis, delay in diagnosis, and missed diagnoses for, I think, rare disorders of sleep and circadian. And I think that a lot of that is better phenotyping, genetic prediction of things. Can we look at medication responsiveness using genetic drivers as well. And so I think that would be sort of the overarching research question if I had unlimited funds. And I will just put a plug and say that if anyone wants to utilize some of the genetic data that we have generated or has their own genetic or other omics, we have something called the Sleep Disorders Knowledge Portal that we maintain and we can drop new data sets in there. And it's a really nice browser for looking at genetic associations and taking a little bit of a deep dive into what might be happening in those genetic regions. So before we close, I just wanted to plug that browser and encourage folks to kind of poke around in there. 
Excellent. And if uh, I'll bug you both on the back end, maybe for a link or some information that I can include in the show notes to, to steer people to that browser. But I just want to thank both of you so much, not just for your time today, but your efforts across this manuscript along with your colleagues. Again, I, I get to choose what research we showcase on this podcast. And I try and cover as much breadth as I can. But a lot of the times it's about what I think is like very, very interesting and impactful across so many different domains. And I really think this one touches upon so much of what we're doing clinically and in research that I had to bring it to this platform. And I thought you did an amazing job, both of you, unpacking it. There's a lot of complexity. There's a lot of creativity. And I think our listeners will really appreciate this episode. So thank you both very much for your time. All I ask now is that, Jackie, you have a wonderful rest of the same day that I'm on. And Angus, you pave an excellent path forward for Jackie and I as when we reach the next day in our lives. And with that, we'll close down. Thank you both very much. Take care of yourselves. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. And that concludes this episode of the Sleep Research Society podcast. Thank you very much for listening. If you have any comments or suggestions for content, or ways to enhance the podcast, then please feel free to send an email to sleepresearchsocietypodcast at gmail.com. Again, that is sleepresearchsocietypodcast at gmail.com. Before officially closing down this episode, I would like to directly thank the leadership of the Sleep Research Society, as well as the board of directors for their support of this initiative. Additionally, I'd like to thank the Sleep Research Society Communications Committee for their efforts in the development and maintenance of this podcast. Also, I'd like to acknowledge the other members of the podcast team for their efforts behind the scenes. This includes Katrina Burrows and Shivani Gianni, who serve as podcast managers, as well as Dr. Mohan Dutt, who produces these episodes. Furthermore, I'd like to thank chronobiologist Dr. Rulof Hutt for graciously providing the podcast intro and outro music. Lastly, I'd like to thank the community of fantastic sleep and circadian researchers that comprise the Sleep Research Society as well as all other listeners of this podcast. Thank you, and until next time, sleep well.